Warning, this podcast has stories of real-life events and true crime that happens every day. These stories may contain adult language and graphic or disturbing details not suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. In our society, most people are content to go through their daily lives safely and peacefully. But our society is not always safe or peaceful. For that reason... Some men and women answer a higher calling to defend and protect their fellow man. You probably know someone who is one of these people, or maybe you are one of these people. The ones who see and do the things most people would never want to. These things are sometimes heroic and beautiful, but often they are horrific and terrifying. It's these things they don't share about with other people. It's these things they carry with them, so you don't have to. But when they get together, they talk to each other about them. And they call these stories War Stories. Welcome to another episode of War Stories. I'm Tom. And I'm Chuck. And uh you're uh you're in a world of hurt right now, Bubba. What's, just, what's yeah, happening? So uh I got a scare last night or yesterday when I went to the doctors, doctors thought I had a had a blood clot and they needed to to get done or uh, ultrasound to get done ASAP to check the uh, femoral artery in my leg uh, to see if there was a clot in it um, due to the fact of uh, the swelling and the right. infection that I had. And it was crazy. Come to find out, don't have a blood clot. So it is an infection. I'm on two different antibiotics now. Um, just trying to beat the uh, infection in the leg. And then it, it doesn't, it's not too bad. I think it's getting better. But if it does take a turn for the worst, they'll have to reopen me up and clean it out and then close yeah. it back up. I don't think it's going to come to that. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't want that. Oh, yeah. No, you don't want that. Um, no. Yeah. I don't. I don't want that for you. <laughs> it's just. Boy. Um, but uh, before we get too far into it, uh, I wanted to welcome our guest for this week, which is uh, Major Joe Patterson. How are you, sir? Or, and I, I guess Joe is okay. Joe's Joe's perfect. Yeah, I really appreciate <laughs> you guys having me on. Oh, oh no, we're happy on. to have you. Yeah, we're happy to have you. Um, we're gonna do a little uh, housekeeping before we get on to uh, the major stories and whatnot. But uh, Chuck, I I had a, a email from a listener who was uh, wanted to tell us that he had just listened to it. Well, I'll just read it real quick. Just listen to the. Cesarif sheriff episode uh foreign leo fascinates me but you guys mentioned walmart parking lots and rural policing so it made me think of a story i was working a side job part-time security officer at a rural hospital for the local hospital provider by the way you know how many cops in rural areas have to work two jobs it's like you know you're a cop yeah. and then you're a security guard uh yeah, it's crazy. anyway his most security guards are current cops or ex most popular side gig for cops in the area um Let's see, he says, uh, that being said, I was just hanging out in the office and listening to a local scanner watching Netflix, not because, you know, there's not much else to do. All agencies in the area use plain language. And I hear the following officer dispatch. I think I'm out with a stolen vehicle on the lot of Walmart. I don't think it's occupied. Check a plate runs the plate dispatch. says, Yeah, it comes back stolen. Uh, is this going to be it gives the description officer? Yeah, that'll be it. Just hold off on a tow for now. I'm going to hang out and watch it for a bit and see if I can get a winner copy about 10 or 15 minutes later uh dispatch he tells dispatch i got one proned out at gunpoint it's one of the coker boys <laughs> he came back to the vehicle and i got today's winner started second non-emergency i believe we have mutual understanding here and he won't act up 
he says, I wasn't on scene, but rural radio never disappoints. <laughs> Thanks for the awesome episode. Uh, I shared the podcast where you mentioned my grandfather, Frank, with a couple of family members, and I believe you got some new fans. Thanks again, Danny from Kentucky. So we appreciated that uh, email from Danny. And then for longtime listeners, you'll remember we have had JR on the podcast way, way, way early in our episodes, way before I moved and John, uh, when John was still on the show. Um, JR is a recently retired SWAT cop from the Southern California area. And if you can believe this, the big, tough Marine SWAT cop rescues cats, right? Everybody's got to have a, yeah, he does. Cats? <laughs> yeah, he rescues cats. So, uh, JR retired and moved cool. to Kern County, California, um, uh, where he is actually building his cat rescue, like on oh, his property. Shit. And so, <laughs> um, I, I just, I wanted to give him a shout out because JR's, you know, been on the show and we, we dig JR, um, and we, you know, appreciate the time he spent in the Marine Corps and then subsequently LAPD SWAT. Um, so I, I wanted I'll to give a shout out real quick. Good. I think the reason why he's a cat person or rescuing cats is because so many stations, doesn't matter what agency you work for, have a feral cat population that is like its own city. They fight with raccoons. They're just they're yeah. everywhere. You you come out to your, your car, your 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 shop or whatever, your war bag, and there's like a bunch of cats roaming around. Right. So I bet you that's bet you that's I'm sure. Yeah. (laughs) Years of work in the street. So I wanted to give a shout out to meow salvage.com. You can email them at, yeah, yeah. Rescue at meow salvage.com. Email them directly. So it's rescue at meow salvage.com. They are a registered 501 C three charity and you can Venmo or PayPal at meow dash salvage. They're trying, they basically, it says, uh, we only solicit donations when needed. And we are trying to raise funds to finish and fence our two new cat buildings and recreational gazebo, which includes large quarantine and medical area equipment and electrical is needed. We have a few special cases we are working with, including a big kitty. We call the unit who needs to lose about 18 pounds. (laughs) They call them the unit. (laughs) Yeah. That's pretty cool. That's a funny name. Right. So, um, I, I want to give a big shout out. If you guys just, if you feel like helping a SWAT cop who took it upon himself to rescue kittens in his retirement, help JR out. <laughs> Cause it's awesome. Everybody's got to have a hobby and JR is just, you know, he's a sniper and a cat rescuer, you know, at the cat salvage. <laughs> yeah. Sounds like a good calendar, right? Or sniper, oh my God. Yeah. Cats. I think Tactic that's cats. <laughs> we need it. Cat. JR. We got to get like, we got to get, all of like pictures of cool gear, right? Here's JR. Here's your, here's your, here's your idea, JR. Here it is. Here it is. This is a freebie. Kitty in the, kitty in the mall pouch. Get a calendar and you take a picture of your tact, your favorite tactical gear. But in every picture of your favorite tactical gear, different gear loadouts, you have a kitten. And then each month has a different kitten with tactical gear and you tactic cats and you sell the calendars. You'll have a palace for your kid. Just step one, tactical gear. Step two, pictures of kittens. Step three, profit. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, that would work. I think. <laughs> anyway, so uh, Joe, we appreciate you uh, coming on the show. Thanks for bearing through the housekeeping. I figured, you know, helping a, a another Marine out when he's trying to rescue kittens would be uh, acceptable to both of the devil dogs present. 
Yeah, it is. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's Marines never, never, uh, let me down with the surprises that they, uh, they can put out there. I can picture a big, tough Marine sniper with a bunch of kittens. Right. Yeah, check this out. I got, I got something that'll make your head spin. I spent the whole morning being a florist. <laughs> and no right. shit. Yeah. I've been making boutonnieres, vase arrangements. All Man's got to have my hobbies. <laughs> they, they smell good. They don't talk back. Again, they don't stink <laughs> like shit. <laughs> Love it. No, that's great. So, Joe, you um are you are still I mean, you're transitioning out of the core at this point is what you said. So, kind of why don't you go take us back to the beginning a little bit and tell us how you ended up in the Marine Corps and rose to the level of major and now are transitioning out. Yeah, sure. Um well, I appreciate the question too. Um I'll try to keep it brief. My career's been a whirlwind of uniqueness. So um, I'm a former uh, thug, I guess would be the best way to put it. So like back in the, back in the nineties, you know, like there was, they recruited one kind of person to be a Marine. It was like the guy without any other options. Um, (laughs) Right. I am part of that population where literally um, the recruiter helped me um, avoid, um, you know, avoid jail for lack of better words. Um, No, yeah. Found me, found me a home. Like that's not the case these days. I think we recruit smarter, brighter folks, but um, you can never underestimate the guy that has no options, right? Like I am eternally grateful what for what the Marine Corps um, for the opportunities that it gave me. So you know, from former gang member to having a master's degree, you know, like I owe all of that, uh, you know, to the to the Marine Corps. Um, right. You know, and that's that's basically it. So I came in in '97. Uh, I was a uh, uh, a pogue, as we call them, you know, so I was an avionics technician on Hueys and Cobras, um, did some instructor time um, at officer candidate school where I was screaming and yelling and making the, you know, future officers while I was there. I was like, yeah, I was watching the quality of these guys coming in, these men and women coming in. And I was like, you know, I could really do this. I don't see what the big deal is. <laughs> um, right. So right. I, I, uh, I thought I was competitive. So I applied for the, the MESET program. It's a Marine Corps enlisted commissioning education program is what it stands for. That's basically where they allow you to stay on active duty and go to college at the same time. So my basically every morning, instead of going to work, I go to school, get a degree and then um, get commissioned. And they still have this. Yes, they do. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great opportunity for a guy like me who had graduated high school, barely uh, had a 1.6 GPA, you know, before I joined the Marine Corps. um, And, but I was a great Marine. And so that allowed me to compete for the program because that's what the Marine Corps wants. You know, they want, they don't care about who you were before they care about the kind of Marine you are. And um, I had proved myself enough to get accepted to the program and got my degree and then decided I wanted to do what I actually joined the Marine Corps to do, which is what you see on TV. You know, you want to be, you want to be an infantry guy. You know, I think most, most people, when they think of the Marine Corps, that's what you think of, you know, the guys hitting the beach on Iwo Jima or Okinawa. And right. I wanted to do that. And I, my route to do that was become an officer. And so that's what I did. And I became an infantry officer in 2008 and then um, commanded a platoon um, I was a commander platoon in combat, and then I went off to be a fire support coordinator for the battalion after that, and a weapons company XO, and then I went off to some some more school, and then I led a fleet anti-terrorism security team 
um, for a few, about three years. Um, oh yeah. So boring stuff. Yeah. And then, uh, <laughs> and then I got picked to come Jeez. back. I got picked to come back to my, uh, to my home battalion, which is third battalion, fifth Marines and command a company. Um, so I've only been in one infantry battalion, my whole career. Um, and after I'd finished up my company command time, I was like, uh, I was about my 17 or 18 year mark. I was like, you know, I, I got a degree in communication. I'm, I'd like to explore this and I'll be truthful with you guys today. You know, like, uh, I'll tell you guys stuff I haven't told anybody. My reasons for switching out of the infantry had everything to do with what I wanted to do out of the military when I get out. And I'll be completely honest. I didn't want to be a major in the infantry. Um, I was, you know, at 17 years, I was going to go do write a desk and that's not what I went to the infantry to do. Um, so I, switched jobs into public relations, which is a big transition. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, I mean, if you're looking for life after the military, that's a smart transition. I thought so. And, and that, there was some selfish um, reasons why I did it. Um, quality of life was one, uh, you know, and then, you know, post-military career is another, but it also gave me an opportunity to lead Marines still where I wouldn't, I still wrote a desk, but I had, Marines that I was directly responsible for that I wouldn't have had if I would have stayed in the infantry, right? Like as right, an right. executive officer. So I did that uh, for a bit and then I got selected to be in my current position. So right now what I do is I'm the liaison officer for the Marine Corps. There's only one and I got the job. So it's pretty sick. Um, but pretty I, shit. I, right? work that, <laughs> I work that space um, between the DOD and Hollywood. So when Hollywood decides they want to make a movie that features the Marine Corps um, and they want our help, uh, they reach out to my office and uh, I help make a accurate movie that portrays our service. Well, and uh, I'm not going to lie. I may have talked to somebody from your office on the phone in my former career in the movie business. Yeah, you, you may have, <laughs> you may have yeah. um, the Marine Corps hasn't been very active in the entertainment space because we are very much focused on operations and deploying and, and, you know, the last 20 plus years of war. So um, I got into this seat and wasn't, uh, too happy with the amount of or the lack of work that we were getting from the entertainment industry and started reaching out and cold calling people. I mean, like, like a salesman. And uh, mm -hmm. now I've, I got a, I, you know, I, I got what I asked for. We're completely overwhelmed with how much work we have. Uh, we're making movies, TV shows, and we're doing it all um, highlighting, you know, some of these stories that you guys tell. So the stories that people don't know about that, they, that America needs to hear about, the young, you know, uh, the young man or woman that immigrated from Mexico and, and had no, no choices or opportunities outside of, you know, what kind of like my story, like, what do you do? Mm -hmm. He joins the Marine Corps and he's a war hero, you know, and how many of those stories I could tell they're, they're literally endless. There's so many, especially from the last, you know, couple decades of war. And, um, I've really taken up the, the fight to make sure that when, um, the entertainment industry comes knocking, you know, like I, push those stories on them. And it usually blows their mind with some of the stuff that these young 19 year olds are doing um, when, what, you know, when their country asks of them to step up right, or how right. much they actually step up. And um, because if we don't tell those stories, history will forget. And uh, I'm, not good with, I'm not good with that. And so many of those young men were standing up on their own two feet for the first time, whether it's because they were raised by a family where they never had to stand up in a leadership role until they went out on their own into the military or whether it's the fact that they weren't raised at all and were just 
scrap it on the street, you know, with absentee parents. And then finally somebody said, you know what, you're not just a little street rat. You're, you're, you're a Marine. And now you're going to stand up and take some responsibility. And it was the first time anybody had ever expected that of them. Yeah. Well said. Yeah. Well said. Good. Yeah. Um, well, I, I, I'm all about it. Cause you know, everybody knows on this, that listen to this podcast before I worked where I work now, I worked in the movie business and in between being a cop and doing the movie business thing, I ended up doing research and, you know, I, it was my job to find out what was the right gun? What was the right uniform? What was the right holster? What was the right this? You know, what was the right that? So on many of occasions, I've had to call offices just like yours and say, hey, do you want to guys want to get involved with, you know, so I wouldn't be surprised if we'd made an official request to your office at some point in time. And I, I'm glad that these stories are getting told because one of the things that would frustrate me to no end is to see all the amount of crap that would come across my desk that was fluff and nothing and meaningless when there are so many great stories, you know, we've, we've had the, the, the guys from Sangin, you know, and the, the, and the shadow company boys talking about corporal Patino and, you know, corporal Patino's story is just one of many stories right. about these brave young Marines. Yeah. There's so many great stories of Marines that need to be told that haven't been told, you know, um, that hopefully we can get those stories out there and make a, a good film that portrays them and honors them and their family and their sacrifice and service. Yeah, that's and that's my motivation. Um, and I find it very easy because most of the, you know, in my line of work now dealing with the entertainment industry, which, you know, depending on your view of it, you know, there's some stereotypes that they don't care about actually. And that's not been what I found at all. I found once I introduced them to a story, usually they ask me, is that true? I'm like, yeah. And they're like, this is a movie. I'm like, yeah. And I've got 50 more of these. Um, And, and they, you know, we just wrapped filming with a a movie a couple of weeks ago that really um, they wanted to focus on veteran resiliency. Like how do you fight the war within after you come back and the war is over? And so um, just to see like a, you know, a lack of better words, a civilian led production that thought deeply enough about that topic and they did it so well. They did it so well. And I, I can't wait for that to come out so I can talk more about it. But um, there are there's some great Americans in the entertainment industry that really care. And it's just it's yeah. our job is, you know, in the military to and in and first responders in general. Right. Like so many times where uh, you find people are too humble and they don't want to talk about themselves, which is respectable. But there's a balance in there that needs to be found where if you don't. If you're a leader, you are responsible for everything that happened under your watch, right? And, and to include the good. And if that means that you're going to talk about things that are uncomfortable so that other people can learn from them, even if it's about you, you should do that. Because if we don't, we're going to lose so, many, so much um, good that's yeah. out there. Yeah. that we just don't hear about in the media today. Like there's no, so we, much... we learn more from our failures than from our success. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So, so. No, that's my motivation. And I'm glad you guys asked me that question because that's, uh, I'm very passionate about it. Yeah. And I, I think it's a, I mean, I, storytelling is, you know, you could say what you want. It is the, the best way to convey, you know, when I, when I, my, I remember when my daughter was in high school and she was going through the block of world war two and she says, uh, you know, she says, dad, you know, you got to talk. I'm having a hard time with this Nazi Hitler, you know, da, 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 da. And you know all about World War II. So I said, okay, 
you remember in Star Wars? <laughs> and I drew this analogy between the prequel Star Wars movies and how the evil emperor came to power with Hitler, because that's it's literally an analogous story. It's A to B, right? Right. The whole plot. And she goes, Dad, why can't you be a history teacher? That made so much more sense. And it just it's the the narrative storytelling makes things so much easier to really absorb and learn. So I, I personally think it's one of the best ways to really preserve the the these things for history. Yeah. Well, it goes like this. You know, this is one of my uh, my taglines and then I'll be quiet on the whole topic. But, you know, it's you okay. know we we watch how much how much does the average American consume news like breaking news. And if I asked any random person like, hey, can you quote what was on? Can you give me a direct quote from breaking news yesterday on CNN, for example? And usually the answer is like, no, they can give you like the idea, but they can't direct quote it. But I right. guarantee you, you can quote from your favorite movie. Oh, yeah. You know, they your favorite TV show. Or how many times yeah. have, have we watched the Band of Brothers episode and used that to teach something? Or how many times yep. has, you know, on the police side, you watched the, the gunfight in Heat? And how that played out. And, yep. you know, like that's a great example of anyway. So there is power in it. And if we don't tell the stories on all the platforms, uh, we risk losing a very important part of our history. And if you don't I tell agree. the story, somebody else will. And you won't get any input on how they tell it. Right. You may not like it or it may not be accurate. Yeah, that's exactly right. Right. And I, I can tell you that for a fact, my, you know, my father, when he worked for LAPD, one of the things he taught was a, a class on PIO, public information officer. And I used to say, man, damn the press. I don't want as a young cop. You know, I hated talking to them. Like, they're always there. They're pests. Yeah, they don't even want to talk to them. Just, and he's like, no, don't stonewall them. Do not, do not give them nothing. And I said, why? And he says, if you give them nothing, then in the absence of something, they will make up anything. That's right. Yeah. And there's so <laughs> many, there's so many agencies out there that are, will not speak with the, the, the media. And when you're watching it on the five o'clock news or the breaking news and a pursuit or, or whatever it, make it may up. be, they make some crazy shit up. Like I was watching a pursuit today on the news and it upset me so much. And they're talking about how the police came in contact with a vehicle on a radio call. <clears throat> the vehicle took off and barreled through a fence. And then the media is like in the, in the airship they're they're hovering in the area of the last known location of the vehicle. And they're like, yeah, the police, um, they're chasing a vehicle for uh, failure to yield and maybe a couple more uh, violations, but really that's all they're chasing. And I'm sitting there yelling at the, at the screen. I'm like, how about the felony vandalism for barreling through a fucking fence in a gated community? How about possible burglary suspects? You're chasing something because right. the agent, there's a chasing, reason they don't want to go to jail. <laughs> exactly. And, but the agency that's chasing doesn't mm -hmm. chase for failure to yield. No, it's, it's out never. of their policy. Right. And, so if they just had a good PIO public information officer out there talking with them, or at least they, if they reached out and that PIO actually spoke with them yeah. on a more fluid basis to actually convey the story, it would be so much clearer and it would be so much, so much better for those agencies because then the media wouldn't be putting out bogus nonsense and making the public distrust the police saying, Oh, well, they're just chasing for a failure to yield. That's bullshit. Probably just a you know, expired registration and they're chasing them and they're being yeah. evil and mean. But if they actually tell them what they're chasing and why, and you know, operational security, you keep it, you know, um, you keep it short and sweet and to the point, but at least get the story out there. So it's the correct narrative. So you don't have to sit there and backpedal later right. because that news is already out there. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And yeah, we call yeah. that maximum disclosure, minimum delay. Right. And yeah. 
it takes moral courage on the leadership to push that PIO out to the scene and, and, and be actively engaged with the media. And a lot of people are scared of that. Oh yeah. It's a scary, I mean, it is a scary place to be. You're operating without a net and you know, like I, I work with guys who are social media, you know, and they're young kids who don't know, like not a lot of life experience, maybe a lot of social media experience, but I tell them, you guys have to understand this is real. This is the real world outside of your little texting bubble. And you could say something that could sink an entire company in one tweet or Facebook post or Instagram post. Think them. That's the world we live in. And you know, it's, it's, that's a hard thing. That's a hard responsibility. It's a hard place to live. So yeah, it takes a, a lot of responsibility. Well, Joe, I, I, I appreciate you coming on and I love, uh, you know, love hearing about that background. Cause you know, it ties into my love for film, <laughs> but the floor is yours, man. What is your story? Yeah. I was trying to turn my extra lighting on. Am I coming? Am I dark? No, you're looking good. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I think, uh, you know, the, there's so many topics. There's so much that I would want your viewers to hear but I think uh, I think what I'll do is I'll just start with kind of the the context of my experience, and so you know, typically, and most times when I when I interact and tell these stories, I I, I talk a lot about my boys, my Marines, um, but I think to get the benefit that I'm hoping um, to get out there, I'm going to talk about me today, which is a little bit uncomfortable, um, with hopes that other guys that are thinking about joining or that are already in find themselves in a position like I was in, um, they can hear from me. Right. And like the feelings and emotions that I experienced then and, and, and do now in hopes that, like you said, uh, learn from my mistakes and then also um, just hear kind of what's, what's out there, what's out there there in the world and what are some things you have to do with And So I'll, I'll, I'll rewind back to, um, 2009, when I graduated infantry officer course, and uh, I was given orders to 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines. Um, it was nine of us total are going to go to the Dark Horse Battalion and uh, lead, you know, national treasure. You know, young, young men, uh, only men at the time. Um, now there's men and women there, but um, only men at the time and then infantry battalion. So we all go there, we check in, and this is a very storied battalion. If you or your viewers don't know much about it, it's the most decorated battalion in the Marine Corps. Um, and every major, you'd listed a, a battle from a, from a war, they were there. And that's a uh, literal fact. It's, it's a huge legacy that we stepped into and a lot of pride in that battalion. I can't express that enough. Um, yeah, no pressure. Yeah. I mean, right? it's, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, it is, it is where you want to be if you're an infantry officer or a grunt period and um, very tight knit family um, and so on. So we all check in, uh, we get our platoons, we find out, you know, Hey, we're training for eventual deployment uh, to on the 15th Mew. So Marine expeditionary, we're going to go on ship and um, you know, operate in the Pacific or, or in a Persian Gulf somewhere. We're doing all our training and um, you know, as, as we go through the training, we get, we get to uh, we're doing a winter winter uh, package in Bridgeport, California. So cold weather training, uh, very um, Korea-like, like when you'd read about like a North Korea, uh, Korean war stuff. And okay. we get the word, we get the word that um, we're going to be deploying to Afghanistan. Um, and it, we're going to go to a place called Delaron. Well, none of us knew what that was. 
Um, so we, you know, but it made, it instantly made the Marines start training harder to find out they're going to go on a combat deployment. Something clicked in them. And I'll never forget the day um, when I was standing on top of this freezing cold mountain, we were done with our training. We we're coming back. And we, had, when we'd gone up to start the training, we were, we were a mess. I mean, we, we couldn't do anything right. Um, and now three weeks later, I'm looking at my, my Marines and they're in this perfect tactical column formation in the snow, wearing white camouflage and their dispersion is perfect. The form, you couldn't have put the formation in a book any better than this. It's just beautiful. And I'm standing at the top and this like, uh, not uh, snowmobile is coming and they all just kind of quietly get down and find their concealment and then they disappear and then he passes oh, and they end up and they move and there's not a word being said. And I'm standing on the top as, as the Lieutenant wanting to like feel good about myself, but really I didn't do anything with them other than be with them. Their sergeants, their corporals really got them to that point. But I remember standing there looking down as they're, moving and I was I've never been so proud in my life and I remember thinking we're ready and this is early in the deployment and it was that specific day after that my platoon bonded as a family and every guy is going to tell you that they were a family when they're there but when I tell you we were a family I will tell you we still are a family I'm I talk to them all all 40 50 of them uh monthly at, at, at that's the longest span we'll go without talking to I'll be able to hear from each and every single one of them within the period of a month. That's awesome. We're still very, we go to weddings. We travel across the country. Like we're that kind of, that kind yeah. of group. That's this amazing. is, you know, easy company type stuff. <laughs> yes. And, and that's what, that's what I felt like I, I did. I felt like I was in an episode of band of brothers and I was, and I was Lieutenant winners, man. And I was like, right, man, this awesome. is your boys. Yeah. And I, I've, and we had that kind of mentality that was, that you've seen it like to really put a flavor on it in Band of Brothers, like where, you know, uh, he corrects his buddy for never put yourself in a position to take money from these guys. Like we had oh, yeah. that kind of leadership. And so we were cocky. And now we, we, are, we also think we're the best platoon in the whole battalion. And um, that's arguable because that battalion was full of platoons just like mine. And um, then we find out we're going to a place called Sangin. No one knew what Sangin was. We couldn't find any information about Sangin other than some guys who'd been there uh, a couple of years prior. And then the, the Brits were there. So that's okay. It's also, that's going to ask you, is this when the Brits were already there and they had to. Yeah. So the Brits, yeah. uh, the it's Brits had hours. been there. They took 104 dead in four years. Holy shit. Um, they weren't able to, they had, they, they weren't manned and equipped to dominate in the area. And so they were like fed up with Sangin for the most part. And when the Marine Corps took over, you know, responsibility for Helmand province, um, they said, we're going to send dark horse into Sangin and we're going to, we're going to basically separate the enemy from the population. If there's any friendly population there. Um, and we're going to secure that town. So now I fast forward to, we, we show up to Leatherneck, we insert into Sangin and my platoon is got the task is the main effort, right? That's what everybody wants. Um, that confirms we're the best. Um, and so my commander put my platoon at a patrol base in the middle of a very dense urban area that also bordered a, the Northern green zone. And so when you think of Afghanistan, a lot of people think desert and that's true with the exception of the Helmand river and the Northern green zone area that's insane. And so just some facts is 
75, I believe this is accurate, 75% of the world's opium, heroin um, comes out of Afghanistan and 75% of that comes out of Sangin. So the drug trade and the uh, reason to protect Sangin was um, uh, entrenched inside of they. It was more than the Taliban that we fought right? because so many people had a stake in them not losing the poppy fields. And so we insert uh, to our patrol base and we begin combat operations. The longest time frame that I went without being engaged by the enemy in a significant gunfight was three days and seven months. So massive wow. gunfights Jeez. for seven months straight. Uh, took 26 casualties uh, during that time, two killed. Um, and it was literally hell on earth. Uh, the enemy, I'll just give them some credit real quick. They're not stupid. Um, they were some of the bravest people that I've ever could imagine. And that's what you want as a Marine, right? You don't want to go fight some JV team. Right. You want to go toe to toe with someone like you want the best. And, you know, that comes at a cost. Um, but the Marines wouldn't have traded it, uh, not one bit, because we were fighting an enemy that thought, they planned, they had tactics, um, and they were extremely brave and effective. And I'll give you an example of brave. Shooting down people with a 50 caliber machine gun did not stop them from coming at us. Oh, wow. Now, it took air dropping bombs to kill them all. They wouldn't stop unless they were dead. So. Um, those were the, the kinds of things. So then you think about the type of people. So it's a good thing we were a tight knit family unit, um, when we got there because there was never any of the weird, you know, leadership drama. If I needed something done, I gave the order. I gave a, a, a purpose on what, what, like the why and off they went. These sergeants, um, I mean, watching Marines fight in battle was like the best thing I could have asked for in my life. Like these young men were just phenomenal. And um, so that was, I mean, that was the deployment. The battalion as a whole, we took 29 killed, um, over 500 wounded. Uh, it was the single most bloody uh, combat deployment for any one unit since Vietnam. And so we were in, we were in a fight. So, you know, I think the things I really wanted to share are how do you deal with that? You know, so there's leadership, you know, there's leadership, there's decisions that I made. Um, there's decisions I wish I would have made different. There's um, how do you stay on top of the enemy and outcycle his ability to do what he wants to do? And what I learned there in an environment like that was, Step one, it came down to, and this is a very officer thing to say, so I know Chuck's going to roll his eyes, but the, uh, <laughs> the, it started, one of the things that I, that we did that I'm very, um, I feel blessed that we did is we did a lot of studying before we went. Um, and just to like throw some books out there that are familiar with the law enforcement community. So on killing sure. on combat. Yeah. yeah. Um, Two great books. Um, Grossman. You, ha you have to read in like, you know, small steps because it's a lot of information, but the stuff it's that dense and you takes time to really truly yeah. absorb it. So don't shortchange yourself. That's right. And um, if you're going, if any of your listeners are, you know, going to want to prepare themselves for 
you know, combat, whether that's a, you know, uh, you know, uh, a, you know, police engagement or, or whatever it's under, I think on combat is a great book to read about heart rate training and what to expect and how to get your hand eye coordination and all those things that take place and like knowing what to expect is right. important because when it does happen, it's good to not be afraid of it. Yeah. It's the what to expect if you're expecting, but for gun battles instead of pregnant yeah, chicks. That's, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, on killing helped me a lot because what it taught me was as a leader, one of the ways I can fight the psychological casualties and mental health casualties that we may encounter in a, a, a bad combat zone is to own my orders, right? So I send these guys out. They do what I ask them to do. They kill um, as they need to. They save life as they need to. But mostly in our deployment, we killed. We killed a lot. Um, Taking the burden of that killing from them is my responsibility. And so letting them know that they did the right thing and letting them know before the the killing happens uh, that they are ready and they're going to make good decisions while they're out there and that I trust them. And what I have found in retrospect um, after being back here is the mental health of my family is still strong. Um, They don't have regret. They don't have guilt for killing, but we do have guilt like survivor's guilt um, for the guys that we lost. And I'll I'll talk about that a little bit too. But um, I think what I really want to share was if you think you're going to go into a life or death situation and inflict violence on another human being, because that's what it, after the deployment's over and you come sit in a, in a little office with books behind you and talk on a podcast, right? Like, right. Yes. Once all the, the, the sexy stuff is worn down uh, and, and, and the history of it is gone. uh, You're left with the fact that, you know, the guy shooting at you was shooting at you because he believed in what he believed in and was ready to die for it. And you took his life. And in a lot of cases, you know, it's his or yours, but, um, the humanity behind it starts to weigh in on you, right? Like I've killed human beings. Um, right. And when you start, when you uncompartmentalize that, so a lot of us, you know, we'll, we'll box that up and it'll go in, in, a, in a, you know, in a nice safe box somewhere in your head. But over time that, that box starts to erode and can, you know, some of those memories and thoughts can leak out and you got to be ready for that. Because if you're not, uh, that's when you start seeing a lot of these mental health you know, mm-hmm. issues that we have. And right. I'm, I'll just put a disclaimer. I'm not a therapist or a psychiatrist. I'm just, again, from personal experience, the way that, you know, we deal with it is uh, we studied all of this before we sent a round down range. Um, we knew all of this before we killed in anger. Um, and so as these things leak out in your mind, and you start like, like one of the things I'm dealing with right now is, the morality of it, you know, like I'm going to have to answer to God one day for every you know person I put in the grave. And at the time, hell yeah, I'll take my greatest pleasure to kill a terrorist for my country, you know, like, but when you start looking at the humanity of it, there's a, a wife or a kid out there who lost their dad because of my hands, or, you know, you start humanizing it a bit and getting rid of some of the desensitization, desensitization that's out there. And it really affects you in in a lot of ways. And you just have to be, good with it. And that's why studying before you go and knowing your rules of engagement and when you can and can't kill is extremely important, not just for military, but for all the first responders that are out there that are exposed to these sort of things is um, 
arm yourself with knowledge first, not afterwards. Um, know your policies, know what you're allowed to do and not allowed to do. And if you don't like what you're not allowed to do, argue uh, to have it changed yeah. before you're confronted. Like stand up and confront yeah. those policies because um, what you're going to be left with if you don't is guilt for not doing that later. Right. Um, yep. Yeah. Major, real quick, can I can I uh, step in real quick? Yeah, yeah, please. I know you said that I probably would roll my eyes at the the knowledge of the books and stuff like that, and that's absolutely I do not. I think it is so important. I think before you even step, try to step foot into the military or first responder, such as a police officer or a firefighter, train your mind because and give your and arm yourself with the knowledge of what you are going to be facing when you're there. And then while you're in, continue the knowledge, continue training your mind, just like you were to go to the gym every single day. You need to train your mind because your mind needs to be tough and you need to be, have that in the back of your mind that if I step foot out today, there is a chance that I may not come home. I may have to fight for my life. I may have to defend somebody else's life by taking someone else's life. And if you're okay with that, you move forward and then you, you, go on to the the job field that you want to go and do. And then while you're there, you continue to train because I've seen it so many times where people, you know, they, they train all the time, they, they shoot and stuff like that, but they don't train their mind and then they right. freeze and they stop yeah. inside of a firefight. And you're, that's what and you sometimes can't. they never even considered it. Right. And they didn't, that's or the they just first stood there. time they're considering it. Or they yeah. just stood there frozen when someone was pointing a gun at them and started to yep. crack off around, you know, I've yeah. seen it and it's, it's not their fault. But at the same time, it kind of is their fault. It's their responsibility. It's the responsibility to train their mind. And I think it is so important to train your mind because it will definitely help you later on down the road um, when you're faced those circumstances and then thereafter. It's not going to be a cakewalk after, but at least it's going to be a little bit more digestible. And And maybe, maybe, maybe this will help if I, if I can try and put it into perspective for people, because I, you know, having not served in the military, but having been a police officer who's required to, you know, go to work every day and say goodbye to my wife and not sure if I'm coming home, you know, we used to have rules too, just like military art. You know, my dad told me a good cop eats, stays dry and goes home at the end of his shift. And whatever happens to the other guy doesn't matter because you have to go home at the end of your shift. You have a family. Yeah. This is your job. And so, you know, those kinds of things, it, 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 it affects you. And what I'll say is for those of you who have been a police officer, firefighter, or combat veteran who have has seen the worst, the, 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 the saddest, the most horrific, if you've done those things for your country or for your city or for, you know, the people of your community and you're struggling with it, the struggle is a good thing. It lets you know you're still human. Yeah. Yeah. There, are, there are two kinds of people, the people that are affected by being a cop and being a veteran and going into combat and seeing those kinds of things all the time. And those are called normal human beings. And then there's a very small percentage who aren't affected by it. And they're called sociopaths, because if you're not affected by it, you probably had something defective in your soul to begin with. This stuff will hurt you. You know, it, yeah. it goes back to reading. So, um, you know, there's some some old uh, Spartan writings from like 300 BC. And it talks about the role of the officer in combat. And so take officers in the military. And then also you can apply that to, you know, leadership in the police force, but what is our primary role and is to prevent what you're talking about, which is prevent the sickness. So 
the sickness meaning also possession, where you are so angry and emotion is so um, involved that all you want is revenge. And you will go out and you will get that revenge. And it's my job, especially in an environment like I was in, to harness the motivation and the anger um, and ride that line right at the, you know, take them and let them go right to the point where they're just the most effective killing machine in the world, but they're also ethical and moral. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're, they're not doing it out of anger. They're doing it for the right reasons. Um, yeah. And it goes back to, and I'll say this too, it's just one of the points I really wanted to make was um, we've, we've hit the, you know, studying and reading and I equate it to uh, if we look at an NFL player, how much of an NFL, you know, a football player's life revolves around him being a master at his position from nutrition to stretching, to physical fitness, to mental health, to injury prevention, to injury recovery, the whole, the whole thing. Like you would see a professional athlete making millions of dollars, caring for his body and knowing his or her craft inside and out. Right. We need to do the same thing. And when we recruit or we promote leaders uh, that don't view when they view that their military career as a job or as a career and not a profession, that's where we have a problem. And so for the listeners out there, uh, especially your, your leadership that's out there, um, whether it be first responders or military, my charge to you would be read the books that you make your guys read, know the Mm -hmm. policies that you want them to enforce and know them inside and out and how to interpret them and break those things down into user-friendly terms so that you are arming your folks with the tools and I'd say weapons um, to go out and, and, and have good judgment calls and make good decisions um, so that you're not questioning them when they do make one. Because right. questioning someone after they do it after a shooting is the worst thing you can do for the mental health of that person who just fired that weapon and probably took a life. Absolutely. They shouldn't have taken that shot without um, informed, you know, information in their brain housing group, as we say. Um, And that all starts well before you put a gun in their hand. And, and, um, and I'm not, I'm not speaking to first responders necessarily. Like I'm speaking to military leaders that are out there, Training is one thing, but living a lifestyle, the warrior way is dedicating your entire life to this profession. And our profession in the military is war. And if we don't prepare and we're not professionals at our profession, uh, we are going to continue to have, you know, um, mental health issues in the veteran community. And um, these problems, some of these problems that we have, we're not going to go. And then also to say, um, having some of these mental health issues after shootings and after combat deployments is like you said, it is normal and it is a normal reaction to abnormal events. Um, We're putting people in a position that is not normal and they're having to make tough life or death decisions. So there will be consequences to that in the mental health domain and having a, a, you know, having something set up and ready um, like good, effective, engaged leaders um, is the way that you prevent things. It's not program after program after program. It's people who love you asking how you're doing and taking care of. You. That's right. That's my two cents there. Um, but 
I can move on if you guys like the. Uh, no, I mean this, we've got we we've we've got you until my check my understanding we got two episodes to do so so you can wrap as long as you want in this one and we'll we'll tackle the next thing on on part two. Well, I'll I'll give it this with with that deployment. Um, I don't want to discredit it because I just hope the listeners understand like the hell that we were in is unlike a hell that a lot of other units experienced um, where snipers were engaging us. You know, we were being engaged by machine guns and uh, we were being engaged by mortar, not mortar rounds, RPGs. Uh, IEDs were in, we were, Sangin was literally declared a minefield. That's how many, like you couldn't walk most places without finding or stepping on an IED. Um, they were very wow. effective at their use. They had counter, you know, um, tampering devices on them. So even if you did find them, uh, typically where there's one, there's three and they had, you know, they were rigged to blow if you, you know, mess with certain parts of them and, and so on. So how do you, as the leader, you know, keep your guys going outside the wire every single day, motivated like they were the very first day, Sometimes you go out on patrol and someone steps on an IED and gets his legs blown off. And that's, that's it. There's no gunfight. Right. That's demoralizing. There's no one to shoot at. There's no one to punish for that event. And um, my answer to that is, I don't know if I did it right. Um, I I definitely didn't do it right every day. Um, And those are the kind of the things that kind of well up in me. And, uh, you know, I know I built a, a solid team and a good family and, but when do you like, do you know, did I know my people well enough to know how to care for them individually every single day as different things happen? So um, there was one day where we had one of my Marines was killed and my immediate go-to was find the squad leader, tell him, you know, he did everything right and give him a hug. Well, this was the wrong guy to hug. <laughs> he didn't right. want to hug. He was on his right. combat deployment. It wasn't the first Marine that had been killed on his watch. And it was the most awkward thing I'd ever done. I've always, always been like pretty embarrassing that I thought that's what I was supposed to do. And what he really wanted was uh, uh, a task to go out again the next day and take the fight back out there. That's what he wanted. Right. And um, it took me a good couple hours to figure that out. But um, coincidentally, that was 11 years ago yesterday. Oh, wow. Um, And so that's the story I was going to share with you guys tonight. Um, It's the story of Irvin Sinaceros. Um, and so I met Irvin, uh, that's the, that's the, the, that's the, uh, stuff you sent me today, correct? Yes. Yeah. Yes. And that was all over Facebook today as well. Yeah. He, uh, there was 11 years ago yesterday, one of the Marines from three, five, um, did some amazing stuff and earned a Navy cross. And at the same time, um, same day, same like not 300 meters down the way, uh, Urban Sinaceros gave his life, earned a, earned a silver star, but I'd rather have him back than give his mom a medal, you know? But, um, right. I met him. So this is the kind of guy he was. And this, I think this one story, you just multiply this by all the guys in my platoon. This is, uh, kind of the typical story. We found out we're going to Afghanistan and so did the whole Marine Corps. And so, People were trying to come to the battalion to get their combat deployment because Marines want to fight. It's what, what they want. Um, Lance Corporal Sinaceros was in another unit. He wanted to come to our battalion and go on the deployment with us. And 
didn't know how to do it. So he called the monitor as a Lance Corporal. And this is something you just don't do. This is the quickest way to find yourself with orders to Norway or something, right? Like <laughs> you don't, you don't, you don't call the guy. He's usually like a master sergeant. Uh, if you're a Lance oh, no. Corporal, you know, you, he oh. totally skips the chain of command, but somehow talks the monitor into giving him orders to three, five, he checks in, uh, the first sergeant sends him out to my platoon and I'm out, um, training my guys for tactical site exploitation. And we're about three miles away from the CP and this Lance corporal shows up and he's a 240 golf, uh, machine gunner. So he's a, uh, 0331. You know, these guys are very, um, they carry the big, the big gun on the battlefield. They're the first guys targeted. I mean, he's the machine gunner. Um, and they're super cocky because they carry all the weight. They want everybody to know that they're stronger than anyone else. But he right. shows up out there and I'm in the middle of counseling my entire platoon because we did a training exercise and they were, I mean, to be honest, they were just nasty. We were still young in the workup and they were still learning, but they pissed me off. And so I'd called the, the company and said, cancel the trucks, you know, to bring us home. We're running typical Lieutenant thing to do. And um, so I'm running them back, but I told them, I was like, you're all going to run with your weapon and your shoulder at the ready because what they were failing to do at the last training exercise was handle their weapon properly. And so we're hauling ass. I'm, I'm not lying. I was like, I did the, the Lieutenant thing you're not supposed to do, which is like PT your guys to death, but we're running fast. <laughs> I look, like, I look okay, next, fine. Yeah, I'm like, yeah, it was me. But uh, <laughs> I look next to me and there's Lance Corporal Sinaceros with his 240 machine gun in his shoulder, holding it up, running at my pace. And I'm carrying like this tiny little M4. I'm kind of huffing and puffing. And he just looks over at me and he goes, this all you got, sir? That's what he says to me. It's my <laughs> first, time I met, first time I met this guy, uh, we get to the little finish line thing. He turns around and goes, motivates some of the other guys to get up there with him. And everybody just kind of fell in love with him at that point. Cause all he did was talk shit. So uh, he just wanted everybody to know that he was, he was the alpha. So you fast forward to Afghanistan. Um, we're on our first patrol. I sent them out. Um, to interact with some local, some local leadership, just kind of see what was going on. And I wanted them to stay about 50 meters outside the patrol base. And all their whole task was look at our patrol base as if you're the enemy and take pictures of what are perceived weaknesses. Um, if you're the enemy, like, how would you get in? Like all that, that was their mission. And so they're out there, they're doing that. Uh, they got kids all around them and then the kids leave. It's a telltale sign that something's going to go down. Um, so they're kind of on their, their P's and Q's and they start doing an open danger area crossing um, through a cemetery. And this is, I mean, we can, you can stand on the wall of my patrol base and look and see, I mean, they're, they're 50 meters out. They're super close. They're crossing. And then all hell breaks loose. Um, they were engaged from, so on their left side as they're walking was my patrol base. So a huge 10 foot um, HESCO wall with sea okay. wire right. on the right side. Um, Taliban firing positions, just blinking lights like a Christmas tree to the right. Um, and they're all firing through these things that we called murder holes. So holes cut in this big wall that allow them to stick their, their weapon out and just get a nice, uh, they get good fire. Um, they can, they can achieve good fire support or fire superiority from there because they can see us and we can't shoot through the hole. Right. Um, and then they're taking fire from their direct front and their direct rear. So they have nowhere to go except into the bullets. <laughs> Um, Good for Sydney them. jumps. <laughs> Sid, yeah, Sydney goes out in the middle um, and just starts unloading on his 240 and draws all the fire to himself. And he's just from the hip, just blasting away. And the Marines were able to successfully get through the open danger area to cover and then start returning fire. And then that firefight ends. 
And as they're moving over, they realize, because um, we'd only been there a day, uh, they realize they can't continue the way they're going. They have to go back the way they came. Um, so this is like, you know, when we talk leadership, bad map study on my part, right? Like, um, should have known that before they went out. Um, so the squad leader calls like, hey, sir, we're going to go back. I was like, hey, let's let's get some guns up on the wall just in case they engage you again. So we do that and we're kind of ready. They start crossing in again from three directions. Um, they're basically hitting, getting hit from you know front, back, and side. Um, and we're shooting over their head at the wall. Two Marines get pinned down behind a tiny little, I mean, they, they were like chewing on the dirt, this tiny little dirt mound. Two guys are huddled back there. They can't get up because all the fire is coming at them. Then he's running across. Um, he gets hit in the chest, um, stumbles to the ground, um, says he's hit, picks up his machine gun, and continues to run, um, gets to the alleyway where he's got some cover. Um, the corpsman jumps on him and starts trying to treat him a little bit. And with one arm, he just launches the corpsman, gets his 240 back in the fight, exposes himself from the prone, and just starts mowing, mowing down dudes with his 240. And that's where he died, behind the trigger. Uh, he was shot through the lung, um, and, uh, and he, he gave his life right there. And, the, you know, the squad is still in pretty significant contact. Uh, they're trying to evacuate the casualty down to the road, and they're getting it from both. They're getting shot from now all four directions. So tough, tough day, but it gets worse. So I'm dealing with um, one of the worst uh, engagements that we have. I've got a, a, a dead Marine. I don't know if anyone else is wounded. I'm trying to get air support mortars, trying to get any, any sort of help I can. And I learned that one of our um, intelligence Marines had dropped a, a book in the kill zone. And now in this book, for some reason he had on patrol were the names and locations of people that were feeding him information. Oh God. Oh, and so uh, the Taliban now have this, have this book. And now this is a big deal because we know what they'll do to anyone helping us. And so uh, then I get reports that a child was shot. So a child was shot going to grab that book. And uh, now I have a civilian casualty as well. So these are like the horrors that are taking place. So now I have to report a civilian casualty to my hire. I got to report a dead Marine. I'm trying to get fire support to come in. And now I have a source notebook that's in the hands of the enemy that's going to result in the deaths of many other civilians. Um, so your basic shit show. Your basic shit show. Um, the patrol comes back in. We get Cindy taken care of, and we plan that we plan to opt for the next morning where we're going to do a raid onto this like island of compounds to go and retrieve this book, um, which we do unsuccessfully. Um, that was my first day in Afghanistan, really. That was my first combat patrol. Um, and it's like one of the, all these emotions that come through. So I've got it held together pretty good. Uh, you know, I'm giving my orders. We're taking care of everything we need to take care of, handle everything. Um, and then I go to piss that night and I just break down in tears. I'm like, what is happening to me? Like my emotions just came after all the adrenaline kind of wears out, just like you'll read in books that tells you what happens after serious combat events. Correct. You know, my parasympathetic nervous system finally did, did the old backlash on me and um, I don't feel good. And I start bawling my eyes out and I'm trying to keep it together. Cause I don't want the Marines to see me cry. And, 
and all these things. And now you're dealing with the thoughts of like, you know, his mom's going to get that notification here in a few hours. I've got to send another patrol out in a few more hours. I've got a dead five-year-old down the street um, that died because of us. Um, that's, that's a bad day. That's a tough day. Also the feelings of like, what did I do wrong? Right. Um, where can we, wh- what can we learn from this so that, cause we have to continue. So we're Marines, right? Like, you know, adapt, improvise, overcome. Like it's common, you know, Clint with me to say, but it's true. Um, no one's pointing a finger at anybody in this particular, you know, day. Um, the worst person pointing a finger at me was me. And, um, that was just a really, really tough day. And then, you know, to this day, so that death of that Marine, um, you know, when you look at like his background, like he was the guy I was talking about earlier, um, family immigrated over from Mexico, um, decided he wanted to join the Marine Corps. He didn't even tell his parents that he was going to Afghanistan. They found out when they got the knock at the door. Um, wow. wow. Yeah. That's uh, rough. And the only healing that we have, I won't say the only healing, but the, the biggest source of healing that we have is from that family still to this day. They love all of us. They love him. They celebrate his death as his birth into eternal life. Um, they Definitely. are fantastic, a fantastic American family, if you've ever seen one. Um, and they are unknowingly um, helping all of us feel like it's okay. Like you, we don't deserve to take what Sidney did for us away from him by feeling guilty about it. It's kind of their, and it's kind of the mantra, right? Like he wanted to be there. He wanted to do what he was doing. The enemy gets a vote. It's no one's fault. It's the Taliban's fault. You know, it's the enemy's fault. Right. Um, But you know what? It sounds like he knew where he was hit and he knew he wasn't, Long. He knew he wasn't going to make it. And yeah. so he got the, he got the doc out of the way and he used his last dying moments to, to die a, a death of a warrior and turn the tide of a battle. Yeah. He, he, when I tell people the short version of the story, he died squeezing the trigger, literally died squeezing the trigger to save his brothers. Now, when you think about the humanity behind like just, just the, the depth and layers to that story, here you have a, a man who wasn't even born in the United States and we have like all these diversity discussions and, and all these things, but in, inside my platoon, we had people from every walk of life, every race, we had multi, like different kinds of religion. You have this hodgepodge of people, which is so symbolic of what America is anyway. And uh, willing to do anything and everything. For, we literally say the words, I love you to each other when we get off the phone, like you would like a family member. And we did right. even then. Um, so if just like, if, people could just take like any lesson out of what they could see in our military and and our police. And like these people that come together and just want to do good and bond, like we're a pretty good damn country if we could figure that out. And the other thing I always say is like, Hey, you know, like the Taliban, they weren't looking for like, you know, the Brown, black or white American to shoot. They were just looking to shoot Americans. Right. So like red, white and blue. Yeah. If they, if they don't even care, like, why do we care so much? Like, it just, it's just frustrating yeah. for me on the military side because I don't, I'm not exposed to that sort of uh, banter, I suppose. It's, we're one family unit that, you know, will do anything for each other. 
But, uh, well, here's what I'll say about diversity. And this is people who've listened to this show for any length of time know this. When you take organizations and you talk about diversity, diversity only is a strength. It's only an asset when everyone from those diverse backgrounds is pointed in the same damn direction, whether it's church, whether it's the military, whether it's police officers, whether it's firefighters, you get them together and they bond over a common purpose because a common purpose will beat out tribalist racist ethnic whatever tendencies you know the enemy of my enemy is my friend kind of a thing so diversity is great but just make sure that you're all facing the same direction because as soon as you have diversity and people start to become individuals well now you're done you're done yeah yeah and that's uh, what that's what the military does you give everybody a common purpose yeah yeah it was um it was a sad day, but also a, a beautiful thing. It's, it's, it's such a weird con- conflicting emotions, right? Like watching those guys fight like that. And then uh, like my little radio operator, he was probably 18, 19 years old after the first uh, big engagement, he gets on the radio and he's like, uh, you know, stand by for, you know, salt to report. And then he's like, he gives me the perfect little report, just like he was trained to do while bullets are flying all around his head for the first time in his life. Like people are, trying to kill him and he doesn't even know that it's a seriously bad engagement it's like a normal gunfight like this one's pretty bad um and he's he's just rattling off his report he's like all gear and equipment accounted for you know we're ready to move uh, get this radio <laughs> and it calmed me down because i'm freaking out right like i'm like I'm, i remember yeah. trying to talk into the radio and i'm trying to not shout because you know i i know it's loud but i i know the person on the other end is not gonna it's going to sound like I'm panicked. I don't want to sound panicked. I want to, I want my commander to know, like, I've got it. And so I'm trying to stay, keep my voice at the right level, but I can hear oh, yeah. it shaking as it's coming out, you know, and I'm giving that report. And I, I bet you a lot of your listeners who've been in, you know, stressful life or death situations can know exactly what I'm talking about. Yep. Um, yep absolutely. Just, yeah. Just trying to control the stress my, in your voice, but yeah, the stress you, in my you, voice. I, there's, there's that, I don't want to be viewed as a, you know, pussy first, <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> but at the same time, I need to communicate this stuff well. And if I'm panicked, I, it's not going to come over well. And yeah. I might lose the confidence of my commander who might needlessly send more people uh, to where I'm at, which might make the situation worse. Right. And so, yeah. Well, we give all of our guests, uh, cause I'm, I'm excited. You're going to come back for part two. Cause I can't, I want to hear the rest of this, these stories. We're out of time on this episode, but we will have more of uh, this same stuff for, part two next week. Um, however, we always do give our guests a chance to dedicate their episode to uh, a fallen brother or sister. And I, I have a feeling I can guess where we're going with this. So Joe, take it away. Yeah. I'd like to dedicate this to urban Sinaceros and his family. Um, he's, in, he's got a, a large family here in the States. Um, they're very special to me. And um, I could think of no better man, Marine or person. Um, to dedicate it to there's so many of us that wouldn't be here without him and uh you know that's what drives me to do good every day as i'm hoping to make him and his family proud and i want to be worthy of his sacrifice so i dedicate it to urban sinaceros yep third battalion fifth marine regiment india company and uh i've seen the little uh, I, you, chuck sent me the pictures of the the plaque it's a really beautiful little memorial um that's it's really awesome uh if, if we have permission maybe we can post the pictures on our instagram yeah. 
Uh, we'll uh, we'll tag in it and whatnot. Yeah. I, I so I can't wait for you to come back. It's gonna be yeah. it's gonna be awesome. Yeah. Um. So just set that up with Chuck. Yeah. And uh, Chuck, do you have anything as we close out? Uh, I would like to say that that Marine is a true warrior. Um, had the warrior spirit already in, embodied in him, and, and uh, before he was even over there, and that is a true testament of the warrior spirit on the way that he selflessly put his life in front of his brothers and sisters to protect them, knowing that he wasn't going to make it. He didn't just lay down and, and, and say, all right, I'm done. He kept going. And that is a true and admirable thing. And it's the true warrior spirit. And I can't say enough on it until Valhalla brother. I mean, there's two ways it, to die on your feet and on your knees. You um, chose feet. Yeah. I would like to say this. Uh, all of our new stuff is is uh, <clears throat> in the store. Uh, we have uh, been working tirelessly on some new things to come out, uh, possibly for some cold weather. So keep an eye out for that. Um, I'm working on um, a surprise. Um, it, so keep an eye out in the next couple months. Um, there might be something coming down the pipe. Um, aside from the cold weather, uh, possible sweatshirt. Um, I think I've yeah. We might much. do another. We, no, we did a we did a pre order for the last sweatshirt that I that I had. We're we're the let's give it a sneak preview. We're working on a newer version, an updated podcast hoodie. So we did a limited edition one, which was the concealed carry hoodie. It had the morale patch bots on it, stuff like that. We haven't brought them back to the store. We were going to do another batch, but Chuck wants to go with version two. So that's a sneak preview. Keep an eye yeah. on our social medias. And there's and we'll, possibly, uh, a, yeah, there's possibly, hold on. There's possibly, I'm working on something right now. Uh, the logistics of it are a bit messed up, but I have something, some stuff scrolled away that uh, even Tom doesn't know about. Uh, I'm going to make ooh. it, uh, I'm making it a surprise for everybody that's involved. And uh, cause it's coming from me and it's going to be pretty awesome. in 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 my book, um, <laughs> and I think that's going to, you guys are all going to really like it. Um, so keep an eye out for that. Um, like Tom was saying, we are going to do a pre-order on sweatshirts here really soon. Um, we, we've been working on tirelessly working on this artwork, um, to come out. Uh, it's, it's going to be, it's going to be great. It's going to have some, some pretty cool shit on it. Um, it's going to look awesome. Uh, and, uh, go to the store, purchase some goods, support us, yep. uh, keep these podcasts coming. Um, you know, and we can keep everything alive and, and fun and, you know, bring you more great stories. And, uh, yeah. And Joe, we look forward to sitting down with you for part two. Uh, so and I thank you for being on part one. Did you have any closing thoughts before we uh, end this week? Yeah, I just want to say thanks, guys. I really appreciate what you're doing. Um, so, you know, like people think, you know, Thank me for my service as they probably thank you for yours. But I just want to say for, for everybody out there, thank you for being an America worth fighting for. And so yeah. uh, really appreciate everyone listening to this and letting me uh, get some of this stuff off my chest. So thank yeah. you guys. That's an America worth fighting for, which is also worth saying, let's keep it that way. Let's keep it an America worth fighting for. Uh, all right. Well, until our next episode, come home with your shield or on it. <laughs>